Miss the show, no problem. On point and on the program, the chief of Six Nations in Brantford's demanding money in a criminal investigation into the oldest residential school in this country. They believe children are buried on its grounds, and they also have the records and documents they believe will bring actual justice. The pandemic it whole led to a whole lot of folks buying a whole lot of things to spend their time on, and that includes boats. And now Marine police say a lot of it, inexperienced boaters are putting people at risk, and they don't often have the insurance needed to protect themselves and anyone who gets hurt. And Kevin O'Leary takes a stand to defend his wife in a fatal boat crash. And uh, why put Mr. Wonderful on the stand? And will it work in making sure she's not convicted? Let's get talking. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul and faith. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Not only should I be invited, but I should be invited to speak. Uh, you know, this is a this is a, an event that has been billed as one that talks about intersectionality, one that wants to talk about the experience of uh, Jewish people in politics as well. So, given that I'm the first Jewish leader of the federal party in 45 years, and only the first Jewish woman. Um, it seems it just seems very strange to the community, the Jewish community, that I wasn't invited to participate and to speak. Why invite Anna Mae Paul for a partisan stunt that is designed for liberal fortunes? Hello there, Alex Pearson with you on this Wednesday, July 21st. Here we go. Hitting the midway mark of the week. Whew. My day started out um, when my computer dropped into a puddle literally there was one puddle and my computer found it i literally could not believe it got out of my car computer slid off the seat into the puddle that's the day i've had (laughs) the main the most painful part was of course how much work i lost but nonetheless you get back on the horse and get back up uh, and go again but today the liberals launched its two-day national emergency summit focusing on anti-Semitism today and tomorrow the focus will be Islamophobia and you know this is a political stunt when you see who's not on the invite list and that is of course we the public who are paying for this thing but the oppositions also denied entry and that is of course off the top who you heard from which was Anna Mae Paul the Green Party leader and um, you know if first of all if Justin Trudeau wanted and was at all serious about combating hate against these two groups, then a one-day summit's not going to cut it. So that's how we know it's a stunt. And if he were actually serious about fighting hate, he'd have spoken up a long time ago about anti-Semitism, which has been on the rise around the world for absolutely years, and certainly here in Canada, where StatsCan reports Canadian Jews are the most targeted religious group for hate crimes, And we've seen attacks increase year to year. So if you look back to the 2019 numbers, which is what they've got to the latest, an average of six attacks on Jews are happening daily in this country. And so those numbers have suggestedly uh, gone higher. And if Trudeau was also really serious about fighting anti-Semitism, then certainly he wouldn't have been so welcoming to floor-crossing Green MP, whose anti-Israel views weren't just well-known, but perpetuate the false and very inflammatory rhetoric that Israeli Israel is an apartheid state. 
And not only did Trudeau welcome Jenica Atwin into his party, but he's yet to say a word about her views. Like, we've heard nothing from the guy. You know, is he okay with them? I mean, he must be, because she's now a liberal. Uh, but, you know, back then, Dominic LeBlanc said, quote, the Liberal Party welcomes divergent opinions, even when it comes to Israel. Okay, fair enough. Being critical of Israel is not anti-Semitic. But Atwin's statements promote hate and alienation against Jews. So I'm sorry, that spin just does not jive. That's, she doesn't have differences of opinions. She's anti-Israel, and her comments are anti-Semitic. So sorry, it just doesn't, it doesn't spin for me. And Trudeau can't claim he's against Jew hate and then let it walk into his party. Or maybe he can, as long as he is then seen holding a summit where he can tell his Jewish voters, look, look I'm fighting for Jews. He is not. And then we have yesterday where he was in Hamilton, where he stated that fighting hate means politicians can't politic on creating divisions, which means it requires leadership and bringing people together to fight it, which then begs the question, if this summit isn't being held for his political gain, why didn't he invite opposition leaders to take part of it? Aaron O'Toole was not involved. He asked several times if he could take part in the summit and got no response. And then he also shut out Canada's first black Jewish leader, you know, the very person who might actually understand racism and anti-Semitism. There's no place for partisanship when we're talking about an issue like anti-Semitism and every party has a role to play. And so the fact that I was excluded, uh, I did receive, I should say, late last night an invitation not to participate, but a webinar link so that I can observe the event. And as I understand it, the, the reason for that is that they want to focus on uh, community members and let them express their opinions and ideas. I don't see how I'm not a member of the Jewish community. I don't see how I don't have ideas that can contribute to this discussion. Because it's not about you. It's about him. Because I watched the summit this afternoon and uh, I didn't see a whole lot of community members involved. I did see a screen full of liberal MPs looking ever so concerned and nodding very approvingly at everything their dear leader said. So, look, I put little stock into what I see as a charade. I see no sincerity to it. I think it reeks of political opportunism. And that's because it's pretty obvious, and it has been made obvious, that the liberals are gearing up to use hate and racism as their weapons of choice in this election so that they can wedge their competitor, you know, competitors, mainly the conservatives, who they will portray as old stock and intolerant. And further proof to that is the national ad campaign that they'll be launching any day now, which they have designed to teach white Canadians about systemic racism. The campaign will target white males, Canadian, 30 to 44, living in places like Hamilton, Thunder Bay, and Quebec. These are places liberals have deemed racist hotspots. Go figure. We got a guy who did blackface too many times to count, and he's now the guy teaching whites about the kind of racism that he used as a regular party trick. Go figure. We know is that the TRC discovered records of at least 54 death records in the 142 years associated with the school. What we don't know is where those little bodies are buried. We know that throughout the Institute's history, there was an upwards of close to 500 acres that formed the school property. 
we know that every acre needs to be searched. Well, that is the voice of Six Nations Chief Mark Hill calling on the federal and provincial government for money as they want a proper ground search done on this former residential school, the Mohawk Institute residential school in Brantford. And they're also asking for a police investigation. And it's not known if the school grounds actually have any unmarked graves, but over the years there have been bones found close to the school. And given what survivors have come forward to with, uh, you know, on information, the local band wants a proper investigation of the grounds done to see if there are any children buried on this site. But this is one of the oldest and longest running residential schools in the country. It opened way back in 1828 as a day school for boys and then girls started going in 1834. But through the years, 15,000 indigenous kids were taken to this school and it closed up shop in 1970 under the government of Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Paul Bennett, we know him as the director of Schoolhouse Institute, the author of The State of the System, a reality check of Canada's schools. And generally, Paul, when we have you on, we do kind of a school check. But you coincidentally did your thesis back in the day on residential schools, so you know a lot about these issues. And you wrote your thesis. It was called Forging of Social Identities in Ontario's Protestant School Communities and Institutions, 1850 to 1930. This was a case study on residential schools and boy who knew back then that it would be um, you know so relevant today exactly there are 18 residential schools in this province including Mohawk Institute residential school what do you know about this particular school because I have to think that this is the first is it the first in the country or in Ontario it's the first in Ontario founded in um, 1828 as you mentioned although 1831 is normally the founding date when you go back and you do your research, it started as a very, very small day school for Indian children and for orphans in and around the uh, Six Nations Reserve Garden, uh, the uh, the actual the reserve of Grand River. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it evolved. But you're quite right. It had 140 to 142 years uh, of operation. It is the longest serving of these residential schools in Canada, as far as the records have indicated. They are quite um, convinced that there will be um, bodies found on the grounds. It's a big, big property, 500 acres. Uh, It's going to take some time before we know this. But what do you know about what happened to the kids? Because right now we have stories from survivors who have come forward and talked about the abuses. They've talked about, um, you know, they were called by numbers, so they weren't called by their names. But, you know, in every school you seem to hear these horror stories. What do we know in particular about this school? We have far more evidence of uh, what went on in terms of abuse, and we're talking here about physical, emotional, and sexual abuse of the um, charges or those that are now called survivors. This is a school that was uh, famous for a uh, nickname, the Mush Hole, which was the description of the food, which was uh, terrible at that particular school. Every one of these schools had its own reputation, and this one had a terrible reputation for food and for a number of things. We know that the boiler room was uh, actually a prison for escapees. We know that there were countless examples of runaways. We know that uh, in uh, 1903, there were three fires. There are actually four documented fires by um, students burning down. And uh, we also know that unlike many of the others, the Mohawk Nation has 
preserved a lot of the remains and a lot of the documents. In fact, it's unusual in this regard. In uh, 1970, when it was closed, uh, the Mohawks arranged with the government of Canada to take it over, and they actually turned it into the Woodland um, Cultural Centre. And so it has the best preserved archives. Indeed, um, you may not know this, but uh, just the other day, the government of Canada and other governments gave $4 million to support the Save the Evidence campaign of the Woodland Cultural Centre. There's been some controversy around the centre because many people would like to see all of these sites bulldozed, but the Six Nations of the Grand River have taken the position that it, it is a an important uh, historic site, and they've been using it for educational purposes. Uh, they are very organised, and uh, right. this campaign to um, get a criminal investigation and to get uh, up to $10 million to do the excavation it needs to be taken seriously. Uh, we know from an excavation that was conducted in uh, 2011 by a um, by actually by Kevin Annett, who's well known as an enemy of residential schools. He's done documentaries that he was actually brought in by the Mohawk Nation to do an excavation. He did a 20 square foot excavation, and they came up with bones and buttons, which were uh, identical to the uniforms that they wore in this school. So we have more than just um, uh, oral testimonies. We have actual evidence that there is, there have been bones that have been exhumed on that property. So this is, unlike a lot of the others, there's a tremendous amount of evidence that atrocities occurred and that there will indeed be bodies found uh, buried uh, or uh, parts of bodies all over the grounds here. I'm pretty confident that there's going to be another discovery at Mohawk Institute. Yeah, isn't it fascinating that they had the forethought to um, not just only turn this into uh, um, an educational center to, you know, teach future generations about what happened, um, but that in doing that, they have preserved evidence that may very well be key in launching a criminal investigation, which is very much what Chief Mark Hill said today, is that they know, he was pretty categorical in saying, they know that crimes have been committed and they want this investigation launched. So it'll be interesting to see if, in fact, any actions uh, like that get taken, because there have been lots of calls for justice in these, um, you know, residential school burial grounds, but the the Prime Minister has been uh, reticent, if not completely uh, benign, on on committing to anything. Uh, Certainly the Catholic Church is not going to come forward willingly to get involved in anything. And so I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, how are they going to get any kind of criminal uh, action or justice if they can't actually get an investigation by the police started? And so maybe this is the residential school uh, that has the key documentation that can lead uh, to the first steps of justice. It certainly has the best preserved records. We also have three um, well-known records that are published. Um, Elizabeth Graham, 1997, The Mush Hole, Life of Two Indian Residential Schools. Uh, Maddie Harper in 1993, Mush Hole, Memories of a Residential School. And uh, a, uh, a an exhibit that was first launched in 2008 and sponsored by the Woodland Center by R.G. Miller called The Mush Hole Remembered. So there's a great deal more evidence that can be brought to bear on an investigation of the Mohawk Institute. And I don't think we're, it's speculative. I think this is a legitimate claim, one that needs to be taken seriously. 
and uh, another example of how um, history was buried. And, uh, you know, it takes a crisis and international recognition and um, national coverage to bring it to light. Well, without question, while Indigenous voices in this country are not monolith, they are on this issue of wanting justice very much speaking in one voice. And uh, it's either the Prime Minister is going to have to address it um, or he's going to be called on it. But they actually are sick of the talk and they now want the walk. So we'll watch this one closely because I don't think the federal or the provincial government can say no to this funding request for an investigation. Um, and I'll call on you again because you clearly have a, a depth of um, knowledge in this particular area, which uh, I think serves us well. Paul, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling on me. That is Paul Bennett. We uh, have him on every couple of weeks, and he's uh, generally, when we talk, uh, it's about education, but he just happened to do his thesis, kind of looking in-depth into residential schools. So there you go. This is what we now know. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point you understand. There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. I'm listening. So there was this rush to buy bikes, then everyone got into Peloton and weights, and during this pandemic, everyone was in a rush to find something to do, anything to stay busy. And one of the activities a lot of people apparently took up was boating. Experience or not, boat sales went up 26%, and in the rental market, it spiked by 17%. I mean, it's one thing to take up biking or maybe building a gym, but when it comes to boating, you actually have to know how to boat. They're big. You don't know how to operate them. You have to know water safety. And what Marine police are starting to see in very big new, uh, numbers are these new boaters who don't have the right skills and they don't have the right insurance or any insurance at all. Surprisingly, I mean, there is no law in this province for boaters to have that. And given how deadly it is, you'd have to be crazy not to, especially in light of Kevin O'Leary and the whole trial that we're watching uh, north of the city. Nonetheless, it is the thing a lot of people are doing, and they're not doing it well. Miles Smith is an honorary director with the Toronto Search and Rescue Marine. He joins us now. Good to have you. Great to be here. How are you today, Alex? Well, I'm good. A little perplexed because I love going out on the water, and I think a lot of people obviously do. I mean, I you know, Canada has this huge boating community, 16 million uh, Canadians boat in the summer. But, you know... It, it does strike me as a bit odd that even if you didn't have experience, you just say, hey, I'll just go out and buy a, bu- a, buy a boat. And yet a lot of people did. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, it's, it's understanding because it's, it's a great temptation. You know, here in Toronto, we're blessed. We've got this fantastic Great Lake right on our doorstep. Uh, and it's very inviting. Uh, and if you are prepared and you go out with the right gear and the right uh, preparation and the right mindset, it's a great experience. And we want people to do that. Um, but just as you know, you wouldn't um, you, know, you don't like to see, for example, people doing the street racing or hanging outside mm-hmm. windows on the highways. Um, this is you know, a, a serious environment. It's, it, people think of it, I guess, as unstructured because there aren't lanes or stoplights. But in fact, there are good rules to practice in the water and there's some good prep to do. I think you mentioned uh, the, uh, the spike in uh, boat purchase and uh, sorry, boat purchase and boat rental. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a part of an ongoing trend that's been going for a number of years. You know, new Canadians, old Canadians uh, are being drawn to the water in huge numbers, but they, they don't necessarily make the same preparation uh, that they would make for uh, learning how to drive a car. Yeah, and they're very much uh, the same. I mean, uh, you know, the water doesn't have lanes, but I've been on a lot of lakes up north, and, you know, there's very much a way that you go through the water because you don't know what's underneath the water, and every year the lane that you can travel in changes because either a log falls in or maybe a rock shifts. I mean, there's always something under the water 
uh, that can not just cause big problems but cause uh, death. Um, what are some of the things you guys are seeing when you actually see these, you know, people out there making mistakes? Well, uh, one thing that, that's worth stressing every single time we talk about water safety is having the right gear on the, board, on the boat and also um, wearing life jackets. So mm. I think people think about themselves as, let's say, strong swimmers. Uh, and, and that's sort of like you imagine yourself jumping off a diving board into a pool with a lifeguard handy. But when you go boating, it's not like that. Um, so people often very much underestimate just how cold the water is, even going into summer, actually. Um, and one experiment just to, to realize what that's like is run the cold water on your tap uh, and then mm. put your arm or your leg under it for 30 seconds. Um, imagine that over your whole body. The, 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 the fact of the matter is that even the strongest swimmer loses strength in the body very quickly within a minute uh, for much of the year and all year round in some of the colder lakes. Um, you also imagine that you're going to hit the water conscious, but that's not necessarily true. People fall out of boats uh, and can hit their heads or be otherwise dazed, incapacitated. So the, the life jacket is, is really a, uh, a precaution to take at the front. Um, one other thing that's often neglected but can make a difference, especially when people don't you know, come back on time, is leaving a sailing plan with someone responsible that you know. So who went on the boat? Where were you going? When you expected back? This is all right. you know, part of the stuff that you get as habit and, and attitude when you do your, your pleasure craft operator's card. Yeah, that way, if you're late or not coming back, uh, someone can call into the police and say, hey, look, they went up on this route, they were going over to the Toronto Island, and we haven't heard from them, then you guys have at least a starting point of where to search. Um, you know, the bottom line is, though, um, this is not going to go away. And so it surprises me, you know, that boat purchasing and that anyone can buy one. But again, why don't we treat this as seriously as driving a car? Because the consequences, you know, I know so many people who have been in fatal boating accidents, or I've covered a lot of these things, certainly through my time. Um, but they, they generally, when you crash a boat, they don't generally end well. That's absolutely right. I, I think, you know, that escapist um attitude can be countered by just a responsible approach to you know, the same, as you say, uh, as if you, you know, you're getting a puppy. A lot of people want to get dogs during lockdown, but you know, you have to be uh, thoughtful about you're going to look after the thing for a lifetime. Same with uh, getting on the road. You know, there, there are all these hazards. It, there's uh there, there's there's a mindset that you want to undertake before you get to the place where you're you're going to be having fun. We like to see it start earlier, to be honest with you. I mean, uh, one of our uh, focal points is education. And uh, so we put together modules for grade two and the grade six level so that there's water safety awareness, uh, you know, with, with those good, spongy, absorptive brains of kids. I don't think our schools are as, as well equipped to give them all the um, the training in that that they used to, because, you know, a lot of schools have closed uh, their pools, right? So, so yeah. you get Canadians of all backgrounds uh, who haven't really had um, real exposure to the water, and they have sometimes have fantastic ideas about it. One that we, we heard uh, was they thought that there might be sharks in Lake yeah. Ontario, right? Because people don't realize yeah. it's a fresh, uh, <laughs> freshwater body. So you, know, you, you really uh, treat it like a, uh, a, a smart risk that you would take in any other aspect of your life. You know, the, the better prepared you are, the more serious you are going in, the better prepped you are to have fun. Yeah, I mean, the water's so great, and if you're born and raised in this country, you know that swimming is like a rite of passage, and so a lot of people just learn it from a very young age, but a lot of new Canadians who come here don't actually get the lessons, and then they want to go to the water, and then they find themselves in a lot of trouble because they can't swim. I don't know why it is not mandatory in school for everyone to learn to swim, because it is, I, I think, that crucial, certainly in a, in a child's life. Uh, but then you've got the issue, you know, a lot of people will want to take the boat out, and then, you know, haul, let's say, like a, a donut on 
on the back or water skiing on the back. So, you know, I'm thinking here we've got a lot of people who have no experience to drive the boat, and then they're taking people out on the back that probably shouldn't be out back. Yeah, you know where, I mean, a lot of the civics, and that's really what we're talking about, right? It's kind of civic engagement, civic literacy, and responsibility um, has been has been supported over the years by members of the boating and yacht clubs in Toronto. And they've been the people who do a lot of the uh, informal bailing out and rescue. And, and th- those are the people with a lot of literacy. Uh, so if you really think you like the water and you think you like uh, boating, you might want to, to look at uh, membership in one of the clubs because there's a kind of uh, a responsible and savvy culture in those in those environments. Uh, but, mm. you know, as, as you say, it's really something that should be inculcated at, at a young age for everyone. And, uh, you know, we've got millions of people in Toronto go in the water every year. So the, the best recipe for that, you're never going to have enough resources to cover that, sure. uh, you know, on, on the assumption of mishaps everywhere. So, so having people uh, sort of born and bred into it, so to speak, uh, would, be, would be really beneficial. If someone sees a, 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 an incident, I just wanted to let them know something quick and easy because uh, this is, you know, when, when preparation goes uh, awry, this is where help is at hand. Uh, it's star 16 from your phone and channel 16 on the VHF radio. That's how a boating or water emergency gets reported. Uh, and it's just good to know for people who, who may themselves have taken all the preparations uh, and all the necessary care, but might spot something uh, that's uh, worrisome. Why isn't it more mandatory across this province for, um, you know, licensed uh, boat drivers um, as, you know, like, why are we so cavalier still about this in 2021? Well, I mean, I guess there, there's the compliance side, and then I guess the effort enforcement is, is pretty high. I, I don't know that I could comment uh, with expertise on that, but, um, you know, the, the quickest remedy that I can think of is just for people to think about their own interest, right? I mean, uh, if, if, you, if you could do something dangerous without a permit, uh, you know, the fact that you could get away with it really shouldn't be uh, enticement, so to speak. You know what I mean? The, 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 there, there's, there's an, it behooves every uh, grown-up, uh, someone who's responsible for a family, someone who, who's uh, out with friends, uh, to sort of be literate in things that require skills. And operating a boat is like that. That's why there's the, the pleasure craft yeah. operator card. And it's easy, and people should look into it. It's easy to take online. Uh, it's an accreditation uh, that's, that's, that's easy to get. And it puts you in the right mindset, right. Of, 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 you know, basically checklisting, what do you need to do and have to get out there uh, on good terms? Boating's fun until it's not fun. And then it's, uh, it can be pretty dangerous. Well, Miles, uh, thanks for filling in the blanks on this. Uh, the numbers are pretty crazy. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Good to have you. And that is Miles Smith. He's with uh, an honorary director of the Toronto Search and Rescue Marine. So when you're out in the boat uh, next time, just remember, you might be experienced and licensed, but the uh, person coming at you might not have a clue what they're doing, which is somewhat discomforting. All right, great to have you here. Back with us on this Wednesday. A big day in a Canadian courts, an Ontario courtroom for sure. And he is the only defense witness in this fatal boat crash that killed two people because his wife was behind the wheel. We're talking about Kevin O'Leary, Mr. Wonderful, who took the virtual stand um, at a court appearance in Perry Sound today where he was questioned about, you know, what happened in the hours leading up to that fatal boat crash on Lake Joe and the hours hour, af- hours after. And the Shark Tank star admitted he doesn't recall his wife Linda having any alcohol before because he wasn't with her, but that she was driving that night because she had more experience than he does. Uh, but he saw nothing. He saw nothing that night. Zero lights for another boat. He only saw the lights seconds before impact. And then when the boat with the injured and fatally injured passengers sped off. 
Joe Newberger is, of course, our global news radio legal expert. He joins us now. Good to have you. Thank you so much, Alex. This is one of those cases where I think a lot of people had already convicted in the court of public opinion because Kevin O'Leary is high profile. The O'Learys are very rich. And then, you know, as we see the evidence come out, um, there were no lights seen on on the boat that was hit. Um, there is no evidence that alcohol was consumed. Um, you know, the Crown's case is not presenting like it's going to lead to a conviction. However, we never know. Um, so the only witness that the defense is calling is Kevin O'Leary. My question to you is, why call anyone at all if the Crown, uh, the Crown to me seemed to, or the, the defense to me sounded like it had a pretty uh, good case? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's helpful evidence to still set the situation at the time because a, he gives a fairly vivid description of what it was like on the water at that time and that, you know, they're not able to see uh, the other boat because it was so dark out, there's no moon. And there was zero light uh, coming from the other vessel. And we know through the evidence that the operator of the other vessel was charged with not having a navigation light on. So this sort of supports that evidence that's already come out through the Crown's case. So I, I think that gives some texture to it, which is quite helpful. And whether, you know, he remembers or didn't remember or saw her having a drink is really immaterial at this point. Uh, although we do have an evidence that she blew a, this is the one thing I think that's Still, I think a little bit of a fly in the ointment is blowing the alert uh, and saying that I had the drink after the crash and somebody gave it to me, but I can't remember. You know, yeah. I, I guess, you know, I guess somebody can have a drink just to calm themselves down. Um, but, you know, that does seem a little convenient. But I, I, I think it's a difficult case for the case uh, for the Crown to establish beyond a reasonable doubt. I do think, though, the bigger of the um, the factors in this case, and it's not a criminal matter. So for those thinking that, you know, if there's a conviction, people will be going to jail. It's not. It's a, it's like a charge under the Shipping Act. Um, and maybe they should have gone the criminal route, albeit the OPP officer was pretty clear in his testimony that um, there were no lights on, on the boat that got hit. And that, to me, is the biggest of the mitigating factors. You, you know, um, yeah. any of these lakes up north, they are dark. And they aren't just dark. They are black. And if you don't have running lights on your boat or, or any kind of lighting, those lakes, you can't see anything. No, it's dark. You know, it's, it's so funny. My favorite job as a university student, I was a boat captain down at the harbor front. So when I got trained through the, yeah, it's just an oddity. When I got trained through the Coast Guard, you know, it, it was drummed into your head that especially when at night, you got to have your navigation lights on and you have to be extra vigilant because if another vessel doesn't have lights on, even being in a harbor where you've got a lit city behind you, it still can be very difficult to see another vessel. So that's like drummed into your head. So this is like boating 101. And I think this is the other signal, you know, maybe boat licenses shouldn't necessarily be gone up, you know, go online to a course, because yeah. this is something which is really significant. Navigation lights are extremely important, particularly mm -hmm. because of the conditions that night. Yeah, and it's funny, I'll be having a conversation in a couple of minutes with a, a guy uh, from uh, Toronto Marine uh, and Rescue, and uh, a huge number of people have bought boats. Like, it's gone up 26% in oh, sales, yeah. and they don't have experience, they aren't getting insurance, and I think people think that these things are to toys, but, like, the, the, the ramifications of having an accident in one is is obviously, I mean, the carnage can be terrible. We had another uh, fatal right. accident last week with another two women killed. If this ends up in a in an acquittal, what happens to the civil side of this? Well, it's a different uh, it's a different onus. So on the civil lawsuit, it's a balance of probability 
And regardless of the lights, based upon the alert finding and um, and maybe other factors, the the civil case still could be mounted to try and establish some liability. That said, you know, I'm not seeing a lot in the evidence about uh, Linda O'Leary operating the vessel in something other than a prudent manner. And the alert after the fact doesn't necessarily lead to a finding that she was operating the vessel in some um, manner that would substantiate a, a careless operation. So if, if, if there's an acquittal here, it, it may certainly support the defense side on the civil action. Yeah, well, it'll certainly, I mean, as I said, this was one of those cases that at the beginning, as soon as you heard the O'Leary name attached to it, everyone jumped to the conclusion that, of course, they were guilty. They're just rich people out there doing what rich people do when they're being careless and arrogant and all the rest of it. But again, uh, due process in this country should matter. And I think this is the one case that really shows that the evidence actually matters. And, that, and that's not to suggest that that the people that were hit uh, and certainly those who are injured or killed deserved what they got. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying evidence matters. And I think when you see the totality of this case, the evidence just does not bear out that there was some reckless kind of crazy, um, you know, night of, of frivolity going on. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And you make important points. You know, regardless of whoever is the defendant in the case, we must have due process and we have to wait till the facts come out in the trial. And that's very important, regardless of whoever is accused. But this case also speaks to issues about boating. I, you know, you make a very good point about how many people bought boats, they get licenses. This boat was traveling between 14 and 20 nautical miles per hour. Maybe the, the actual limits on speed have to be looked at, especially at nighttime. There's a lot of things that can come out from this that may be helpful to protect boaters in the future. If this case doesn't change rules, I, I don't know what case um, will. I mean, because, uh, you know, I, I myself know a number of people who have been killed on, on those lakes and boats, uh, sadly. Yeah. Um, and, and it does happen, but uh, certainly, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm very kind of surprised that we're still so casual about, about boats and water in this country to this day. I agree with you 100%. All right, Captain, got to go. And uh, yeah. on that note, <laughs> things you shouldn't tell me. But nonetheless, uh, thanks a lot for joining me. I appreciate it. All right. Have a great show as usual. Take care, Alex. You, of course, can join us live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.